kind of just introduce myself a little bit more to you guys. Um, like Brittany said, my name is Amy Davis, and I'm married to Spencer. He is in charge of the Wilderness Outdoor School. It's, like, it's called Old School. It's like the Wilderness Semester Program here at Snowbird. Um, he also shares like a lot of the teaching responsibilities. So if you listen to any of the podcasts, he's one of the teachers, and he wears lots of other hats around here. Um, when, uh, he and I actually met in college, and uh, it's really funny because we really didn't have anything just um, in common as far as um, hobbies or whatever. We just really enjoyed each other, um, enjoyed spending time together. Um, in 2001, we both ended up working at camp, and I led worship that summer, and Spencer, you know, we both worked on summer staff, and we played in a band together. In 2003, just a few years later, we both came on staff full-time, and by Christmas time in 2005, Spencer gave me the shocking news that he was in love with me and wanted to marry me. And that freaked me out. I mean, we had no romantic involvement, period, to the moment that little broke the news to me, actually, because we both, he, I don't know what I would have done if he told me straight out of the shoot. <laughs> um, but anyway, it took me a few weeks to really process through that. And I agreed to pray about it because I really respected him. He was like my best friend. So I prayed about it, and the Lord began to turn my heart towards Spencer. And so I told him after a couple of, he calls them grueling weeks, that he could pursue me and so um, romantically. And so in about seven weeks later, we got married right down here in this little triangle. So um, that's really cool. Um, uh, we've been married for eight years now, and we have three kids. Alani, um, this is Alani over here, and that's Knox. She's the firecracker, and this is Jed. He'll be three in a couple days. Um, so this is our family. We're also in the process of adopting internationally. It's just a big, long process we can testify to as well. And... Um, if you want to know any more about that, you're welcome to talk to me one-on-one. And -on -one. Um, we're super excited about how God's growing our family. Um, but this is us, our little family, <laughs> on the front porch. So that's awesome. Um, this morning, I just want to speak to you humbly. And I recognize that um, many of you have marriages that are flourishing in the gospel. And that is so wonderful. I don't stand up here before you with a quick... DIY tutorial on marriage that you can stick on your Pinterest board or anything like that. Um, in fact, I believe that what I have to share with you this morning may be far from simple, actually. And I will go so far as to say that what I'm going to share with you this morning, um, you probably can't do at all. It's only through the work of Christ in our hearts and us daily submitting to him that you'll be able to fulfill the role of a wife as what God has laid out in Scripture for us to do. And so before I jump into our text, um, I just want to take a moment and let you guys think about the condition of your marriage today. Um, maybe you and your husband are content in your marriage, and maybe um, your marriage is striving and thriving or in need of just a few small tweaks, but maybe some of you... Maybe your marriages are on the ropes, just taking hit after hit after hit. And you've come here this weekend hoping to, throw a, to get an excuse to, like, throw in the towel. And, or have somebody tell you this golden idea of how to save your marriage. So, 
you may be desperate for God this weekend and be encouraged because he's able to show up. So I'm going to pray again, and then we'll jump into some scripture. And Lord, we, we know your love for us, and you've given us your word as a guide to know you more. And your word is our authority, and by reading it and studying it, memorizing it, um, we know you more. The more we know Christ, the more our faith will increase and when our faith increases in you, we, we see that we are confident and that our hope is increased. And we ask God that you would just increase our hope for our marriages this morning and that they would flourish in the gospel. Thank you for your loving and, and redeeming grace, your blood. Just open our hearts to your word right now. In your name I pray, amen. This morning we're going to walk through a familiar passage of scripture and draw some amazing parallels between Christ and the church, um, our communion with Christ, and the importance of having a deep communion with our husbands. So let's get started. Many of us can look back on our wedding day and remember the anxious waiting of walking down the aisle. Um, like I said earlier, we got married right here, so I remember... I was waiting in the, we had a big plan, everybody was coming down to the little corner down here, it now has like this really cool gravel path, but before it was just all grass, and Brody um, was going to marry Spencer and I, and so our plan was that Spencer would walk up these steps and greet me in the um, weight room, and then he would walk me down the aisle just because of my family and, you know, circumstances or whatever, we felt like that would be the most appropriate. And I just love the picture of Christ coming for the bride in Scripture. It's one of my favorite things. So Spencer walked up the steps, and he flung open the doors, and he greeted me. And it was, like, so awesome because I was, like, so dressed up and pretty. And he was, like, you're so pretty. And I was, like, I know. It's awesome. (laughs) And uh, then he started talking about... (laughs) He started talking about how all of his buddies had pitched out, pitched in and, and bought him this gun. So, like, he's like, oh, you're so beautiful. We're going to get married. Look, I got this gun. They just gave it to me. This gun is awesome. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I'm still just like, great. This is great. He's like, okay, we're going to do vows and then rings, I think, or wings and then vows. And, you know, for me and Spencer, like, this is what we do, you know, putting services together and playing in worship. So we did not even at that point have our order of like ceremony together we didn't really care so we're walking down the back steps like this and the wind is just blowing everywhere and I remember my mom and sister had talked me into wearing a veil because I was like not going to do that but the wind is just like flinging this thing in my face and so I grabbed it out of the back of my head and I just let it go and the the wind like grabbed my veil and just like blew it off into the grass it was really cool and you know other than that I didn't remember much more about the whole thing (laughs) Um, and thank you, Tanya, for taking all the pictures because I can flip back and, like, see, you know, all these cool perspectives of how awesome that day was. It was great. And so um, I got so annoyed by that veil, flung it out of my hair. But there was so much going on that it wasn't until much later <clears throat> that I was able to process the weightiness of this commitment that I'd made to Spencer, right? It was so easy to do. There's so many details you get. I mean, people from college, people from childhood, my aunts from afar, people have flown in, and it's like, hey, you're here, and you're here, and what did I just do? <laughs> it's just crazy. So um, 
many people, so not being able to process that um, for a while, you know, I had this idea that marriage was a contract, you know, and a lot of people come into marriage as a contract. You do your part and I'll do mine. Um, only there's, you know, this kissing agreement thing instead of, you know, a handshake or a nice sign on the dotted line. Also, we didn't sign our marriage certificate until it was almost out of, like, weeks later. And actually, Sarah came and was like, oh, did you guys sign your wedding certificate or whatever? And we were like, oh, let's do that. So we just grabbed people in the office and just signed it. And we had not actually been married, I guess, for a couple weeks. It's funny. So, but anyway, side note, you can edit that out later. I don't know if that's legal, but <laughs> everybody agreed. We got married on the 18th. Okay. So by this... Um, in a contract, you're saying, okay, you be the leader, I'll be the follower. When you're sick, I'll take care of you. And then when I'm sick, you can take care of me. Um, we'll just divvy up responsibilities in the home. You take the trash out, I'll cook the dishes, you know, just kind of divvy it up. And this is totally doable. It's awesome. Um, but the problem with this is that once the husband or a wife in a contract indicates either through words or actions that they're not going to perform the obligations that you both previously agreed to, the other one can immediately claim a breach of contract and seek to remedy it, right? You start thinking, how can I get away from this man? What are ways that I can? Some of you guys are there right now and just dealing with that and trying to figure out what is a way that I can get out of this weighted relationship, this contract. Well, marriage is not a contract at all. And that is just such a beautiful thing because it, it is an unconditional covenant. Um, an unconditional covenant is an arrangement in which the default of one party, the husband or the wife, does not negate the ultimate fulfillment and blessing of the covenant. In other words, I'll do my part regardless of if, if you do your part or not. I will serve. I will submit. I will show honor to God in and through this marriage regardless of whether my husband upholds his responsibility or not. Now, building on this definition of marriage, we can see better how marriage parallels the covenant relationship between Christ and the bride. It's beautiful because there's no out with Jesus, right? He has pursued us, and we are his. If you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, like, you can't get out of that. He's already fulfilled his part of the covenant, whether you or I keep our end of the bargain or not. The church, you see all through scripture, it rebels and comes back. God's people, Israel, you know, they, and Little was talking about last night, you know, this, the manna and the, um, being, you know, walk through the Red Sea and just how God constantly is fulfilling his covenant that he has made with Abraham that he was going to um, keep. So um, let's read in Ephesians 5.31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then in John 3, 29, John the Baptist sets this up when he's questioned by some of his disciples about Jesus. I love this, and it says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bride, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Isn't that cool? I love that. So I encourage you to look at this theme in the Bible as you guys, um, in your personal study times, just how, and draw these parallels between our amazing relationship of Christ and his bride, the church. And it's important that we begin with this dramatization and these definitions of contract and covenant because um, 
it puts us all on the same page right now. Okay, that's like our base foundation of where we're starting in, in this talk. God takes his covenant with his people and his relationship between Christ and church very, very seriously. Right? I mean, he, Christ pursues us and rescues us. He redeems us. He leads us and protects us. The church should respond in submission and joyful obedience. So if my marriage is supposed to reflect this, like an example to the world of Christ and his bride, a picture of the gospel, then I need to start paying attention to my own marriage, to my own actions and my own attitude towards the man who's in this covenant relationship with me. So compared to the amount of text laid out in Scripture about the responsibility of a husband's role you know, towards his wife, it, the Scriptures say relatively little about how to be a wife. As I was studying this for the session, I walked through the passage of Scripture and gave specific and of how it, Scriptures give specific commands as to how a wife should submit to her husband and how she should respect him. Um, but while there's a few scriptures, a few more scriptures that I'll be reading in this, um, in this talk, um, the command for a wife to submit her, to her husband is not directly pinned to a tutorial on how to do this or what this looks like. However, that's only if we're looking at wife. But when we're looking at this picture of covenant, and we're looking at this picture of Christ and the bride, and we're taking on the, the role of bride, we can go to the picture of Christ in the church, and we can ask the question, how should the church submit to Christ? Or how does the church learn to submit? How does the church grow in connection and intimacy with Jesus? And the answer is by reading, praying, understanding, meditating, applying the whole of Scripture, right? The whole thing from Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing is useful in training us and teaching us how to become wives. And sometimes when we come to the scriptures, we just categorize things. Okay, well, this is for the adulterer. Stop doing that. This is for the drunkard. You know, stop doing that. And this is for people who talk too much or gossip. Stop doing that. But as the whole, we are the church. And God in his grace has given us this beautiful book, his word, to train us and teach us in how to do this. So let's look at Matthew 6. And when you pray, you must not... Be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, when I was, a, when I was 16, I came to know the Lord. The explosion of my relationship with Jesus is like any other time in my life. Like, I was zealous. I was passionate. I was so super vocal about Jesus. I busted up my CDs. I burned inappropriate clothing. I persuaded my, um, I worked at this pizza place, and I persuaded my boss to play Christian music in the um, restaurant, which, you know, all great things, good things. Um, but I was genuinely willing to do anything for Jesus because I was new. I was fresh. I was zealous. I had this um, feeling and this emotion and this drive. And while that was such an important time in the early years of sanctification, my growth in Christ could not be sustained by these emotions, right? Social, social cues of like how 
Christian high schooler should act or, or just going to church was not going to sustain the depths of relationship that needed to be established in my heart with Christ. I had to learn how to draw near to the Lord. And I had to, um, the Lord had to teach me how to have a relationship with him. And through circumstances, through spiritually dry seasons, through change in any way, um, my selfishness is exposed daily. And he's growing me. Jesus says, when you pray, when you commune with God, when you're growing in your relationship with the Lord, it's an individual thing. Each one of us are responsible for our actions, right? We're all responsible to submit to Jesus. God, um, Jesus says, actually Jesus says, go into your room, go and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. So I want to encourage you guys to have this type of intimacy with Jesus. Make time to be alone with him. Do you have this kind of prayer time and study time? Time when you're uninterrupted and able to hear from the Lord in the secret. And if we're not making time to seek this type of intimacy with Jesus, the satisfying, secret-seeking relationship with the lover of our souls, then we're not experiencing Christ fully. Therefore, how can we be a representation of Christ in our marriages, right? So quick to point the finger, but our responsibility is, is needed in this as well. If our marriages are to parallel this relationship between Christ and the church, what changes and adjustments do we need to make in our marriages to fulfill our part of the covenant that we've made? Go into your house, go into your rooms, and close the door. Deep relationship with God has grown in the secret, and likewise, deep communion and intimacy with our spouse has grown in the secret. In the chambers of our home, away from the pressures of the world, inside the safety of our homes, how much more how many of us have, you know, like neglected this? I mean, I'm guilty of this, right? We've committed nearly every night of the week to Bible studies, play practices, meetings, coffee dates, Walmart runs, errands, church activities. We're just consumed with serving others, doing kingdom work. But we're failing in the most important relationship that Christ has ordained, our married relationships with our husbands. So we need to go into our homes, go into your bedroom, and learn how to know, and learn, let's see, and learn how to know and be known by your husband. Some of you guys are sleeping by a stranger every night. Um, your marriage is in chaos, but you're too prideful to talk about it, or too fearful to talk about it. But we need to develop marital intimacy. The aloneness and the oneness that we should experience with our spouse should serve to build unity in our marriage. It helps to abolish fear, resentment, bitterness, anxiety, and build up communication, build up respect, build up joy in your marriage. If we're allowing ourselves to be known, to really be known by one another, then we will grow in the depth of intimacy that Christ has intended for us to experience. Intimacy with our husband is experienced when we know one another in the secret, alone, when the lights are on and when the lights are off. Um, I've been reading and studying about this topic for a while now, and I've been shocked by just the statistics about um, Christian married couples who are having sex less than one time a week. And, um, but we need to be building 
and cultivating a healthy, consistent sexual relationship with our husbands. Sex is a byproduct of the growing intimacy between a husband and a wife. Not only that, but it's enjoyable. It's an enjoyable byproduct that glorifies God. I mean, that's awesome. And some of us, uh, oh, here, let's read, let's look in um, Corinthians 1, um, verse 7, or chapter 7, 1 through 5. <laughs> now, for the matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. So do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then come back again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I say this as a concession, not as a commitment. Uh, the part that he's talking about, a concession and not a commandment, is the um, separating for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Um, I'm really trying to be discreet here. <laughs> so, I'll just, Okay. Um, but he, then he says, come together again. Um, Satan will not tempt you because your lack of self-control. Please, you know, don't miss what I'm saying here, okay? But creating marital intimacy is a guard against Satan. Now, in your um, little folders, um, under my little category, I put some references and stuff. And um, actually, Spencer does a sermon. He did a sermon on this exact passage, and it outlines some really awesome things. And just for lack of time, I'm not going to you know, obviously rehash those things. You can go and listen to it and be encouraged. Um, but some of you are nodding your head in agreement. Yes, that is good. Creating marital intimacy is a guard against Satan. But others of you are concerned about where I'm going with this topic. But I will be very calm and easy. I'm not going to blow this out of proportion, okay? We're just going to stick to the script here. Um, Many of us have deep-seated issues in our marriages, and simply having sex more often is just not going to fix it. And so I got that, realized that, and we all understand that. However, sex can serve to minister to one another as you pray and work through the issues in your marriage. Marriage intimacy is a guard against Satan. Some of you guys put off your duty, quote, duty, to the end of the day. When you can easily use the excuse, I'm just too tired to have sex, and go to bed with a clear conscience that you're not lying to your husband, that there's not a deeper issue. And others of you have that straightforward personality, and you're just like, hey, it's Friday or the highway. We've already discussed this, so you don't need to come knocking. That door is not open this week, Friday. So, I mean, everybody's got their own signals and their own communication there between your husbands. But it is not adequate for nurturing an ongoing intimacy with our husbands. So let me say this. Some of you guys may have physical problems like being pregnant, just had a baby, hormonal surgery, legit physical conditions that limit your inability for sexual activity with your husband. Figure out what the problem is and get it fixed. You know, this should only be a season that you guys go through this. And 
because God has intended it to unite us, and it is the only ministry that you get to have. No one else. You know, you're, you can go over to the mother-in-law's house, and she can fix his best supper growing up and wash his clothes and fold them exactly how he had growing up or whatever. But there's only one ministry that biblically you get to do with each other, towards each other. Nobody else. And that's awesome. So don't shrug that off, you know. Um, the Lord has given our bodies to us and the brains that work with the body he's given us. It will work. It will be awesome. Don't stop practicing, okay? <laughs> Practice makes perfect, okay? Discuss your sex life with your husband. Talk about it during the daytime. You're making coffee in the morning. Talk about it. Go through some details. You can talk that way with your husband. It's great. Have discussions about it. Talk about suggestions, ways that you could serve one another better. Um, if you're stuck on logistics, you know, phone a friend, like I said, but talk to a wiser, older woman who has a marriage that you were encouraged by and that you would like to see your marriage reflect, okay? Sometimes talking to your, your friends whose marriages are on the rocks about this, you know, it's just talking. It's not really helping benefit you and your marriage. So um, realize that by God's design, you're the only woman on the planet who can biblically minister to your husband in this way. So do it the best you can, girl, you know? Clear your schedule a few nights a week and rediscover one another and get back to the basics. Start somewhere. And Voskamp says, um, there are no standing lovers. The only way to love is to lay down. Lay down plans. Lay down your agenda. Lay down yourself. Love is always the laying down. This is how to make love out of a marriage. Love lays down its own wants to lift up the will of another. Love lets go of its plans to hold on to a person. Um, many of you have little or no desire for sex at all. And I would encourage you to pray about that. Because, merit, because, because sex is such a... Um, a privileged way to act out this dramatization of Christ in the church. Um, God wants you to desire sex with your husband. Like, it's, it's biblical. And I think that some ladies come into this just like um, in this passage that we just read. One of the problems that the people were having was they were bringing idol worship into the, um, the way that Paul had laid out how church should function. So they were bringing in, like, these pagan sex practices and prostitutes and things like that into the church, right? And so these leaders of the church are writing and saying, hey, should we have sex? And Paul's like, no. What is wrong with you people? Only have sex with your wife. Have sex with your wife. Don't have sex with other people. But what they were doing is once they got married, they were holy, and they would not have sex. And a lot of people have a lot of baggage from prior to marriage that makes them feel dirty, that makes them feel like these things are not ordained or, or there's no beauty in it. And again, um, I would encourage you to talk to an older or wiser woman. After praying and talking with your husband through this, um, the Holy Spirit is, is a great counselor like Little talked about last night. And so I'd encourage you to, to bathe that area in prayer. I'd also encourage you to listen to a sermon by John Piper called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. And it's also in your um, little binder folders as a reference for this talk. 
Um, now, as like I would love to talk about this all day. It's just a fun topic for me, and it's really fun to see some awkward faces and then some high fives in the back, you know. So this is a fun topic, I know, but we can't stay in the bedroom all the time. You know, the vacation has to end. The honeymoon, can, it's got to be over. So what this looks like outside the bedroom, um, what should we be doing in our day-to-day life? And in our homes, and as we explore other ways to grow in marital intimacy with our husbands. And I'd like to draw our attention back to the dramatization of Christ and his bride. Because just as the church obeys Jesus, as they follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to act, think, live like him, and speak, they do that by seeking, we do that by seeking the whole of Scripture. Um, There are lots of passages that I could break down because the whole of Scripture applies to us as the bride. Um, But I'm just going to pick one um, because it will give us some practical tips on how to do that um, when we leave here. And that's always helpful to come to these things to have like at least a checklist of starting point, you know, a starting point to set you guys out of here. So I'm going to start. If we can look in Philippians 2. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now in this passage, again, like I was explaining, actually, no, this is a different passage Paul wrote. Okay, so in this passage, Paul writes to the church in Philippi from prison, and he's writing to encourage them and let them know how he's doing because they've wrote and asked about him. They're showing concern for him. Um, There appears to be some kind of tension or disunity in the church because he's addressing that, possibly over some negative teaching, even false teaching that Paul addresses um, just a few chapters over. But um, whatever the discord between the believers There in the church, um, Paul encourages them to be humble and to work towards unity within their community of believers. So we're going to unpack these verses for a few minutes and single out a few ways how we can be working in our relationships with our husbands on a daily basis. So first of all, let's look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. We must learn to live united as husband and wife. You and your husband need to be on the same page. Paul is talking about being like-minded, having the same love in Christ. And I believe that every marriage represents, represented in this room has the potential to thrive in gospel-saturated like-mindedness with our husbands. We have that potential because we're image bearers of Christ and we have the Holy Spirit. Right? If you're married to a believer, I believe that that is possible. And we can talk, we'll talk more about that later in, um, in our Q&A and stuff as well. But the truth is that it is possible, okay? Jesus prays for us in John 17. So I'm going to read that, and they're going to put some of the key parts of it on the screen behind me. But John 17, starting in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that you may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the purpose, right? The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me and love them even as you loved me. If marriage is an unconditional covenant reflecting Jesus' love and his pursuit for his bride, then your marriage is not a mistake. It was ordained by God. It has perfect purpose. Um, it is to be a picture to the world of Jesus' love for his bride. Okay? So the unity there is so important. Commit to praying for your husband daily, for his leadership, his humility, his healing from whatever hurt that he's experienced from his past. Some of you praying for his salvation, that you would become like-minded in the way that Christ is praying for us here, to be like-minded in him. Here are a few um, practical ways that we can see um, unity grown in our marriages. Um, one, um, we need to grow in communication, right? Communication is key. People talk about this all the time. It's one of the top issues people deal with. Learning the same vocabulary and figuring out others' preferences, timetables, etc. Now, uh, Spencer and I, um, we come from two totally different worlds, okay? I am the creative artistic, fly by the seat of my pants type gal, and he is very fun-loving, super great personality, but he is very logical, very organized, very straightforward, tell it like it is type person, and I feel like... Um, we knew each other so well before we got married, but there were just little things that you don't, you know, you don't notice till you're already signed up for the deal. And so uh, one thing that we had and still kind of our big thing that we go through is uh, this vocabulary thing. Because when he would get frustrated with me, like he would say, he'd say, you are the dirtiest roommate I have ever had. Okay, now I've known Spencer since basically he had roommates in college, right? So I know all of his roommates, like, forever. And on one hand, I can look at those five guys and be like, oh, totally. I got that. I understand. But on the other hand, you know, I'm like, there are not maggots growing in our trash. Things are not smelling from under the sink. I don't smell like a cafeteria. You know, like, there's not dirt on the floor. There's nothing sticking to my feet when I walk through the kitchen. You know, I mean, I don't consider myself a dirty person, right? And so it would really hurt my feelings. It just would. And I was offended. And, like, seriously, like two, three years, we're going, it comes back around, you know. And he would say things to me like, Amy, I just don't think that pinning your earrings to your pillowcase is the best spot to organize your jewelry. And I would say, oh, there are my earrings. There they are. I've been looking for those. And he'd be like, um, you know, you should put your shoes in your closet. And I'd be like, they're in the house. It's our house. They're inside. You know, just getting on that same mindset. Well, it turns out being dirty to Spencer is cluttery. So when we came through this, I mean, it was just like that. I was pregnant, and stuff is everywhere, and we're having, I'm crying, and he's just like, you're just so cluttery, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I'm cluttery. <laughs> Why didn't you say that three years ago, you know? So, like, learning vocabulary in your marriage is, like, huge, you know? Um, 
And so learning Amonese is very huge, too. I mean, he has done a great job. And so while our home does not reflect it this week, because I've been studying so much and trying to get this all straight, um, I have really stepped up in that area because I know that it's, it benefits him and it's important for us. And so communication is key. Um, you must have a, dem- uh, a united front. That's the next thing. Early in our marriage, Spencer suggested this, and it was just one of the greatest things. I came from a broken home, and uh, my, my, I was raised um, in a Christian home. My family um, exposed me to the gospel my whole life, and um, praise the Lord. I'm very thankful for that. But marriage and the picture of marriage was very skewed for me, um, and then divorce on top of that. So, so when he suggested that we had a united front, I was just like, Oh, and I never played sports, like, you know, ever. So, like, I was like, yes, we're a team, you know. For for me, I felt, like, great, like, involved with I just loved it. It's just so wonderful. Um, um, So being like-minded was one of the best, was one of the greatest suggestions that he had early in our marriage. Um, Hebrews 13, 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And so to our kids, to our family, to our extended family, our friends, like, we really try to work on this. and to use the words like we, us, you know, and like some people it's kind of weird. Like when people are dating in high school, I'd be like, that is so weird. You like are never even going to see this guy again after a couple of more months of saying we and all that. But in this covenant relationship, right, it's proper. And so many times um, when we're doing things like discipline our kids, I'll say, daddy and I both agree, you know, you cannot flush color pencils down the toilet and flood the house. Okay, Daddy and I both agree we're not going to hit each other like that in this house. And so just keeping that conversation that, um, and when we do disagree, like in front of the kids over something like that, one of us will be like, hold up, sidebar. Why is it that we're not agreeing with it or why is it that we're this or that? And that's mostly me because he cues into all these other stuff. And so he explains it to me in our marriage. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. That's good. <laughs> that's, that's good. I'll yield to that. Um, but some of you guys are in blended families. Some of you guys are in um, new marriages, you know, where maybe your husband doesn't have kids or maybe he's got his kids and you've got your kids and you're learning how to become one as husband and wife, but you're already one and established with your children. So I would encourage you to seek out other women who are in blended family situations like yours and just seek godly counsel on that. Um, but one thing I would encourage you with is not to manipulate um, Try not to get in the middle as your husband is trying to build this relationship with your kids. Um, Try not to be manipulative in a way that's like standing in the middle because you'll end up like years and years and years and years later. Their relationship may not seal and may not grow and may not flourish in a way that it has opportunity to um, in this point. So. And you guys can talk more to people like that. I'm, I'm really just more in, like, the experiential side of it. I'm not the, um, as far as, like, being a kid in a blended family. But talking to someone who's married um, and, and involved in a blended family would be super beneficial for you guys. Um, also, like, to our extended family, we're careful to use terms like we um, have decided to go here for vacation instead of to your house, you know, that we're not selling each other out. Like, I'm not selling my out Spencer to my mom by saying, uh, we just don't want to come there. Spencer just doesn't want to come there. Or him to his mom, Amy's just not comfortable in your house. You know, just stuff like that. Um, we really um, try to consider one another and represent 
each other as one towards both sides of our family. And even like to our friends, we're really careful not to sell each other out. Like our community is super tight knit. And many of us were married later on. I was married when I was 27. So, um, and you know, we've been here, I think like 13, 14 years. So all of us know each other like super, super tight, almost like brothers and sisters. So there are some things that like I would share with like Amanda or Little or somebody that I wouldn't share necessarily with other people, you know, um, sister type things. And I'm funny things or whatever that are just funny. But for as a whole across the board, um, we're very, um, and even in those ways, we really guard each other in our privacy, in our bedroom, stories and things like that. But um, to our friends, we're careful not to sell each other out and vice versa. Like my friends don't come to me and say, terrible things about their husband to me. Like, it's really awesome about terrible things as in, like, weird habits and things that smell and stuff like that, okay? So we're really good to, cons- to consider one another that way. But also, um, I don't commit to, like, a dinner party or going over to someone's house without saying, hey, Spence, what do you think about if we go over to so-and-so's house tonight? They've invited us over. Cool. Or, no, I'm really tired. I haven't seen the kids. We've worked two groups back-to-back. You know, then I'm not stuck in this obligation, just maintaining like that communication and trying to be encouraging to to him and and respecting us as a, as one. Um, And I think that um, when our husbands can see our marriage as a safe place to rest, they'll be more likely to come home to that. You know, not necessarily home and like they want to come home and like sit on the couch home, but come home to you. Spencer's, um, just so you know, like, we, we, he doesn't, like, rest at home very well. Like, when he, when we work summer camp, like, usually on a Saturday, we're, we're gone. We're going to the playground. We're doing Walmart runs. He likes to be on the go. But his home is with me. Like, if I'm there and we are in Hawassi doing something, he's relaxed and home. Okay? So it doesn't necessarily mean, like, for some of you homebodies who really like to be at home and your husband doesn't, it's not that your husband doesn't necessarily like to be home with you, but that home, it, for Spence, it gets suffocating because he's, um, he feels like he has to fix things or mow the grass or do these things like that. So um, when you're building these things into your marriage, your, your home begins to be you together, not just a place. Um, so you see the differences you can see some differences in his attitude towards you. And for some of you, you may even lead him to Christ in that way. Um, these are ways that you're showing unconditional love and preferring him. And that you're showing him that you are for him and not against him. Um, so I'm going to move on here to um, number two. Learn to champion him instead of being in competition with him. Read verse three. Um, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit. In other words, um, do nothing with selfish goals or scheming to get your own agenda completed. Don't think higher of yourself with arrogance and a sense of entitlement. And vanity and pride will choke out any bit of blossoming hope in your marriage because it's sin. And sin rots us at, at it, and sin is rotten at its root. When our, mar- our, mar- when our marriages are operating from a sense of entitlement, it's as if we're weighing every action between him and I on a set of golden scales, right? He goes hunting for six hours on Saturday. I, desire, I, should des- I deserve to go and spend six hours for my hobby. He just dropped six, um, $400 on a pistol. I need a mani-pedi. 
and a shopping spree to West Elm, hands down. You know, you, it's real easy to get caught up in the weighted scale, and that's not, um, that's not what these verses are teaching us. Um, we have to humble ourselves. Many women are in competition with their husbands. They stack up their gold coins and trying to keep the trays balanced and time with the kids or time alone or time playing or money spent. But Paul says do nothing out of selfish ambition, but we must learn to serve and give and love without expectations. We give without thinking we need to. We ought to receive something back. When we fold the laundry, we don't expect him to put the clothes away. When we love without expecting to see his love in return, Paul addresses the conditions of our heart, the dark, black, decaying part of our hearts that we try to cover up and paint red and happy. But we must get behind our husbands and cheer him on in whatever, you know, like ethical adventure that he would like to pursue. Um, I see this a lot of times in some of the women that God has brought here to camp um, over the years. Um, I identify with a lot of the husbands at camp because my personality is way more like, wherever the party is, let's go. You know, and some of, a lot of them have to have a personality like that to sustain this lifestyle of working in student ministry, you know. Um, and so when I think about these women who are following their husbands here and picking up, you know, to follow their dream or the way that God's called them to serve here, a lot of my friends personally have the opposite personality of my, of me. Like they're, they have things planned out. They have, um, schedules and lists and, um, real organized across the board. And it's so encouraging for me. I love that because I'm always encouraged by, by that. And, um, they are always, they always do a great job in making sure that I, am. Um, knowing what I'm supposed to do or that I'm there on time or whatever. And so I admire that. Um, and I also admire it in, in these women that come because their husbands are like, not in this way of like, let's party it up, but like God's calling me to go to this camp and work and serve Jesus. And they're like, okay, I'm going to go. And we're going to figure out how we're going to pay a mortgage, how we're going to school our kids, you know, and they've got this list of, responsibilities that they've now taken on to support their husband's obedience in the Lord. And it's beautiful. And and that in that way, like they are championing their husband, they're setting aside, you know, a lot of them have pulled their kids away from their parents who they have help all the time, you know, with child care and different things. And they come here and there's no grandma, you know, I think little's the oldest one here. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, well, she is actually kind of like Mimi to my kids, so that's fun. Um, so um, being able to, like, champion our husbands and being able to support him in whatever adventure that he wants to take is, like, a big deal to some of them, you know. And a lot of men are sensitive, you know, and, and, and any influence that you have. And you know your husband, like, it could snuff out what God's trying to grow in his heart, like, just real easy. So um, consider those things to champion him. Uh, moving on, um, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Okay? You need to learn to prefer him and count others as more significant than yourself. This, to me, is the most convicting verse of Scripture that I have long, long time, like over and over. I'm constantly revisiting this, revisiting this in my home. Preferring my husband is hard and humbling, and, and Spence is not a needy guy at all. And, um, and it's really awesome, but 
just even in my mind, like just recognizing like my selfishness and my tendency to do what I want to do for myself instead of counting Spence more significant. It's just, it's an ongoing process. And, I, you know, it's sanctification, which is awesome. But seriously, what does this look like? And how does this practically work out? Okay. Surely Paul's not telling us to be a doormat for everyone to wipe their feet on, right? <clears throat> well, at first, it, it may seem like this is what Paul's saying. Especially since we're so highly influenced by, like, this feminist culture. And... um and this, just this picture of a woman who has to have everything together and we have to have a full-time job and have spotless dish um, sinks and we have to have our own blog that details all of the things that we're doing in our lives and we have to have all these different um, people that we're mentoring and small groups that we're leading and um, dinners that we're hosting and just all of these things. Like it may seem like surely <laughs> I'm not just supposed to let people walk all over me. Um, but our homes are to be our practice field for how we serve and prefer others, right? Going back to what I said before, um, a lot of us will give up the, our chair. Like if we go to church on Sunday morning, we would give up our seat for the little old lady who for some reason got there late, you know. But we would not bend over backwards to run by my husband's work to give him, you know, a Coke Zero that he was like, hey, could you bring me something, you know. We don't prefer them and consider them more significant than our own agendas. Even towards other people, like sometimes you'll stack up other people's um, needs over your husband's needs, right? And um, while it seems a noble thing to do, and to be honest, while your husband shouldn't be as needy maybe in that situation as it is, that's the circumstance, you know? And you have to consider your husband more significant than yourself, and the other people, if you're in that scenario. Um, but we should be motivated by the work of the Holy Spirit to see the members of our family thrive in their walk with Jesus. And any way we can do this to help move them towards Jesus, we should do it. Any way we can be a picture of submission to how all of us as the body of Christ should submit to Christ. Any way we can picture, make a picture of that for our husbands and our kids or our community, we need to do it. And we choose to make serving a joyful habit. Love, as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. It's a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit. C.S. Lewis said that. We need to make it a habit to serve tirelessly with a good heart attitude. And it may mean that you never hear the words thank you or well done. The validation of our obedience can only be satisfied in Jesus anyways. So if our husbands never serve us in return, if they never count us as more significant than themselves, we are still responsible to serve the gospel through preferring him, living up our part of the covenant relationship, right? We must be in the habit of serving our husbands and counting them more significant than ourselves. It will help them to grow in our God-given love for our husbands. Um, we see our commitment sometimes. Someone told me this once, like, we see our commitment it stays steady, just like a line, right? But our emotions, after the honeymoon and discovery love is over and you're back into the reality of your day and the dark settles in and the realities of everybody's sinfulness is starting to show, um, your emotions drop, but our commitment holds. 
And then the Lord gradually grows you back up and your emotions get higher. And then something else happens. You know, it's just this roller coaster of emotion, but our commitment has to stay solid because it's not our emotions that dictate the covenant that was made. You may ask yourself, surely Jesus could not call me to be humble and to serve such an undeserving man. And the answer, of course, to that is that, you know, we're all undeserving. But the validity of our claims to justify and limit our acts of service to those whom we deem worthy is a twisted sin. And it's selfish at its core. We must uproot this deep-seated selfishness and extend the servant love of the gospel to our husbands and to our kids and so on. If we will finish up here um, this final thought on Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus emptied himself, right? He emptied himself to fulfill the covenant that God made with his people. He emptied himself of what he was entitled to out of obedience to his Father and his love for us. He left his glorified position in heaven to take on the form of a servant so that, we might re- so that he could rescue us from the penalty of sin, which is death. So we can serve because we've been served. And, and we can love because we have been loved. We can empty ourselves out because he can fill us up, right? We can bow low because he lifts us up. Jesus is our advocate. Our life should be patterned after Christ, right? Not after the expectations that we have of what a wife should be socially or within our culture. Jesus is the one who has come to pursue our hearts and to fulfill us with complete satisfaction, not our husband's. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with him. So those are some awesome um, encouraging thoughts from the scriptures of um, how terrible we are. (laughs) Um, But how promising it is um, because the Holy Spirit is inside us, you know. And going back to what I said before, like, this is what I'm talking about is it seems like it's so much that you can't do it. And I heard a lady speak one time, and she said, if God is calling you and telling you to do something, and you're like, there's no way that I can do it, then it's probably exactly what God's calling you to do. And it's awesome. Right? Because that's the reality of the beauty of the Lord. You know, he knows us. He knows each one of us individually, and he's connected you and placed you in these covenant relationships with the man who needs to see the gospel in you. 
for some reason. God could use your obedience and your servant heart attitude and your humility to lead your husband to the Lord, to lead your extended family to the Lord. You know, your marriage, like Jesus prays, that they would be one, that we are one, like we are one, um, so that the world may see and know. Your marriages are a picture to your children of the gospel. When they hear you screaming and yelling at each other, it's not a picture of the gospel. When they hear polite tones, thank you, and gracious words, that's the gospel. Patience, joy. Now, it's easy to get irritated. It's easy to get frustrated. It's hard to be submitted. It's hard to submit your emotions in the moment to Jesus. But, but you don't have to do it on your own. The Holy Spirit prompts us. It's, uh, my little girl um, um, has recently, you know, she's, she claims to be one of God's people. She's five, and we're working through that and just making sure everything is clear and she understands. And we were explaining to her the other day about the Holy Spirit. And um, <laughs> she was, like, being really rude to her sister. And I was like, now, Lonnie, you know, if you're one of God's people, then the Holy Spirit inside of you should probably be prompting you right now that you're not being very kind. And she went, Knox, I'm so sorry. Why don't you go ahead and take this? Like it was just an instant thing, you know, and we're just working through that and helping her to understand like how to depend on the Holy Spirit, how that works, you know, and just doing these little checks even as a small child. Because I'm learning that daily as well, you know. So, um, man, I hope you guys have been encouraged by this this morning. Um, I'm thankful for this opportunity to get to share it's always nerve-wracking, but the Lord is always faithful when he presents his word, right? Because his word is what we need to hear. So I'm going to pray for us, and then um, I think Brittany's going to come up. Lord, we just are so humble by your word today, God, to know that we, there is nothing that we can do to rescue or save our marriages but submit to you. And we thank you for your word that outlines our responsibility as the church and that we can see ourselves rightly so that we can confess our sin rightly, so that you can grow in us um, the picture of the gospel, God, because ultimately it's your name that has to be made great, not ours, and not the name of our husband or our family, but you, God. And we ask that you would just teach us how to submit that to you daily, and that in this weekend you would continue to just mull over these thoughts and these selfish things, God, that we have, and and just turn them up in us so that you'd be able to show us where we need to repent, where we need to turn, areas that we need to be humble in. We thank you for your helper and the counselor who is here with us and who, who speaks and directs words and who unites hearts and who heals, who can put marriages back together and who can erase pasts that are tarnished, that are tarnished with just habitual sin and brokenness, that you make all things new every morning, every day, through the blood of Jesus that just washes over us moment by moment. So we ask you, Jesus, to continue moving in our lives this weekend. We thank you for this privilege to be encouraging one another through your word. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.